2021 is looking an awful lot like 2020 so far. Lockdown authoritarianism, big tech censorship and woke hysteria continue to run amok. We're going to have to fight for freedom, democracy and sanity all over again this year and Spiked intends to play our part. But to do so, we need your help. If you enjoy what we do and you have a bit of money to spare, please do consider donating to Spiked or even better, becoming a regular donor. Even £5 per month is a huge help, allowing us to keep bringing you our free podcasts, articles, essays, insights and more. To start your regular donation to Spiked today, just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, onto the Spikes podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spikes deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spikes columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, big tech censorship, the COVID crackdown and whether only gay actors should play gay roles. Twitter permanently banning the commander-in-chief's personal account with 88 million followers. They will be blocking the president on Facebook and Instagram indefinitely. Trump is the spiritual, but I will also say operational leader of this domestic terrorism effort. What is needed now is for us to listen to one another, not to silence one another. Donald Trump, the sitting president of the United States, has been banned or suspended from practically every mainstream social media outlet. Last week, Twitter took the unprecedented step of permanently banning Trump because two of his tweets ran the risk of inciting violence. Facebook has also suspended the president indefinitely, though it has held out the possibility of reviewing this until after the inauguration of Joe Biden. The bans on Trump follow last Wednesday's assault on the US Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters trying to block the confirmation of the election result. Tom, firstly, can you give us your reaction to this unprecedented ban? I think it's terrifying. And we talked about this on the podcast last week. It's worth restating the clampdown, the social media purge of Trump as well as anyone associated with him, it seems like, as well as many of his slightly more conspiratorial supporters, is going to have a far more far-reaching impact on freedom and democracy than the crazed scenes we saw at the Capitol last week. As you said, this decision was unprecedented. Big tech censorship has been encroaching on more and more areas of discussion in recent years, something we've talked about on this podcast many times. But Twitter and Facebook always held out against actually suspending Trump, deleting any of his tweets quite reasonably because he's the democratically elected president. What they've decided to do, in effect, is to get between a president and his people, the public, to censor him in a way that I think represents a huge grab of the power to police democratic politics on behalf of these unaccountable billionaires far beyond the scale of anything that we've seen before. And the responses to it, I think, have been mind-boggling. So they kind of vary between the kind of self-deluded or painfully naive people saying, well, you know, Twitter and Facebook, these are private companies, they're platforms, they're allowed to have their own rules. If you go into a pub and upset the other customers or you break some of their rules, then you're going to be kicked out. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, unless this pub that these people are talking about is basically the only pub that anyone ever goes to, it's got hundred millions of people in it. And it's for some reason where the vast majority of political discourse takes place these days, that analogy holds no water 
whatsoever. These billionaires effectively control huge parts of what now constitutes the public square in the 21st century. To suggest that this is like any other business deciding not to deal with Trump is ridiculous on the face of it. And then you see this other argument, which has been echoed through the impeachment hearings this week, which is the idea that he overstepped the line. He was inciting violence. This Mm. is something that even the First Amendment doesn't protect, and therefore you cannot blame these tech platforms for kicking him off. And that is an argument which completely melts the second you look at the justifications that, say, Twitter have put forward for banning him. They speak of two tweets in particular in their rationale, one in which he talks about the 75 million American patriots who voted for him, and another one in which he says, if anyone's asking, I'm not going to go to the inauguration. And through some pretty admirable mental gymnastics, they try to construe this as direct incitement to violence. They say his reference to the American patriots, even though he's obviously talking about all of his voters, was valorizing the stormers of the Capitol in particular. And even more remarkably, they say that him saying that he's not going to go to the inauguration may be interpreted as him saying that the inauguration is therefore a safe target for Mm. further violence and attacks in which case they're not only kind of reading the mind of Trump and what he was intending there, but also the minds apparently of any of his followers and how they were going to react to this. So the justifications for it don't stack up whatsoever. Even what Trump said in his speech in Washington does not constitute incitement to violence. It's quite clear what this is, which is it's political censorship. It's a kind of purge. It's an act of vengeance almost Mm. against a president and a political tendency that much of the great and good and people within Silicon Valley obviously loathe, want to see the back of, want to purge American society and discourse of. And it really doesn't matter. You go horse saying this, what you think about Trump or any of his supporters or Trumpism or what it represents. The power that has not only been assumed by Silicon Valley, but in a sense kind of signed off by members of the commentariat and the political class as something which was appropriate, which was actually the responsible thing to do, is going to have a far deeper impact on American democracy and on free speech worldwide, frankly, than anything that Trump has done over the course of the last few years. And the fact that people are are barely even recognising this or at best saying that, well, I supported this ban, but isn't it scary how much power these people wield, I think is pretty shameful, frankly. Even now, people aren't willing to admit to the huge kind of assumption of power over the political square that they themselves have signed off on over the course of the last couple of days. It's been amazing. I mean, you've, Tom, you've addressed this argument that Trump was inciting violence, but it's been extraordinary to witness this kind of arms race of censoriousness, um, particularly among the Democrats and in much of the mainstream media. I mean, with every passing day, the events of the Capitol and Trump's speeches and rhetoric are described in ever more extreme terms. I mean, it's been called a coup, a fascist coup, an insurrection, and most chillingly, domestic terrorism. So you have news anchors comparing Trump to Osama bin Laden, calling him the spiritual leader of a domestic terrorism organization. And the result of the hyperinflation of this threat is, of course, censorship and further crackdowns on liberty. And just basically this really sordid and cynical attempt to turn, you know, Trump's words into Trump's very, you know, unpleasant and anti-democratic and sometimes crackpot words into a kind of criminal conspiracy is going to have extraordinary consequences for free speech. And I think we ain't seen nothing yet. Ella? Speaking of overblown responses or perhaps embarrassing responses, I mean, the tweets from Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, are really interesting to look at. 
because he sort of sounds, he encapsulates what the whole panic about people like Trump's platforms is about, their presence on social media is about, because he says, you know, I do not celebrate or feel pride in having to ban Trump from Twitter. But after clear warnings, sounds like, you know, a mum wagging the finger at you. (laughs) We made a decision with the best information we had based on threats to physical safety both on and off Twitter. Was this correct? And then he go, he kind of, he's playing it like, well, you know, we don't have all the answers. Uh, we don't really know what the best thing to do is. And it's a complete denial of what Tom mentioned, which is that at the kind of helm of the, the power of Twitter has incredible amount of influence on political discourse and on people's ability to talk to each other, especially in lockdown. I mean, all of the public square doesn't exist in physicality. It's illegal. Mm. The public square going out into it is illegal at the moment. So the only place where people, we might've had discussions before the pandemic about how Twitter was a kind of closed bubble or that Facebook and Twitter had certain audiences and they didn't necessarily reflect the whole of society. An element of that is still true, but it's also true that far more people are using the internet and these social media platforms or YouTube or things like that to get their information and critically to form their opinions, to see what's out there and to have discussions with people. So it's completely disingenuous to suggest that it's just kind of, it's just this kind of decision that we made and we're still reviewing it. They know what they're doing. And the contradiction that I can't really figure out where I'm at on is that on the one hand, The idea that if you thought there were very serious physical threats to people, the idea that banning someone off Twitter would be the solution to that is (laughs) just ridiculous. It's a bit like in a different context when we've talked about, you know, university campuses expelling people under Title IX in America when they have had sexual abuse allegations put to them, you know, like as if banning someone from going to their English class is the right solution for someone you suspect to be a rapist. In the same way, if you really suspect Trump to be such a a huge physical threat, the idea that you take away his Twitter handle from him is a bit ridiculous. On the other hand, with someone like Donald Trump, the main way he communicates when he's not on a podium at a rally is through Twitter. And this alongside the impeachment is basically, as far as I can say, a desire to kind of lock the problem of Trump away so that people don't have to deal with it, what, in 2024, next election or or after Biden is even inaugurated. It's complete avoidance tactics. It's like pretending that the issue that we've dealt with in American politics for the last four years of either Trumpism on the one hand and the kind of fetish for being anti-Trump on the other hand doesn't exist. So I can't decide whether this is completely pathetic and ridiculous or, on the other hand, one of the most dangerous avoidance tactics that I've ever seen in politics for a long time. Tom? Well, I think one point that is underlined there as well is the fact that what we're really seeing in this kind of disjoint, as you say, Ella, between all of this energy going into clampdowns on on Twitter rather than things that would actually happen in the real world. If you really think Trump was inciting violence, you know, why has he not been arrested or something like this? You kind of think, although that's what many people want, and we'll probably find some way to put him in clink at some point, given the the lust for, for vengeance that's going on at the moment. I think what that underlines is that even in the US, the land of the First Amendment, They've effectively found a way to outsource censorship to the private sector. That's Mm. what this represents because the power of social media is huge and the monopoly that these 
platforms, this small number of platforms hold over public discussion is considerable. And as they can't get Trump on other grounds, they'll get him on social media where, because they are private companies, they can dress it up however they like, but the effect of it will still be deeply censorious, deeply authoritarian, and will send a signal not just to Trump, but any of his supporters that effectively they're not welcome in in public discussion, that they will be punished. I think when you put that alongside the impeachment, you're seeing also something very sinister, which is, again, through the impeachment process, incitement to violence effectively being redefined, at least in a kind of moral sense, if not a firm everyday legal sense, to mean something that it didn't previously. And the risks to this are huge. This is something that Alan Dershowitz has written about in the past week, is when you actually look at what Trump said in his speech, you know, not even talking about Twitter here for the moment, he was using phrases like fight like hell, show strength. He also, in a slightly back-covering way, I'm sure, said that the protesters should peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard. To present this as incitement to violence, incitement to insurrection, as a form of trying to encourage treason, etc. This is something that civil libertarians for a very long time had to fight against when union leaders, civil rights activists, people addressing big crowds where passions could run over would effectively be accused of trying to incite one of those things as a product of their kind of fiery political rhetoric. And a consequence of allowing this to become the new standard could have very serious consequences for speech, full stop. Now, we should be under no illusions. The kind of direction of censorship at the moment is only really pointed at one particular political constituency, shall we say. But there's no guarantee that it's going to stay that way forever. And the people who are in particular saying, I agree with this move, but isn't it frightful, the power that these Silicon Valley billionaires have. They really have surrendered their right to complain in the midst of all of this. And I think the other case that we should talk about is, is Parler, which mm. is another instance which completely explodes the arguments of the people who are basically just making apologies for this corporate censorship that we've seen really ramped up over the course of the past week. Because again, one of the arguments that was made was that if you don't like Twitter, if you don't like Facebook, if you don't like their rules in relation to free speech or whatever else, you can leave, you can go somewhere else, you can even set up your own platform. What has happened to Parler in the past week demonstrates that the monopolies that these companies hold are such that even that is something which is a vanishingly small possibility. So as many people might know, Parler is this free speech alternative to Twitter in the wake of the storming of the Capitol last week. It was first of all suspended by Apple and Google, so it wasn't accessible on their app stores and the Google Play Store, effectively making it impossible for new users to access that app on the vast majority of smartphones. And then you had Amazon Web Services, which again hosted the website itself, kick it off as well on allegations that it was allowing too much speech that incited violence, that it wasn't implementing sufficient content moderation policies, even though the whole point of parlor and apps like it is the idea that whilst we'll take down illegal speech we won't moderate content that's again the whole purpose of it you've seen loads of other companies refuse to work with it stripe which is a payment platform so we've gone from saying why don't you just leave and build your own platform to why don't you just leave build your own platform build your own servers build your own payment process you're starting Mm. to see what i'm getting at here which is that whilst many people are for often quite disingenuous reasons kind of dwelling on the distinction between these companies being private entities, the material control that they hold over speech and over this kind of vast area of the internet sphere is sufficient that it makes the room for dissent so difficult because not only do they hold so much control over the primary platforms, but even the kind of infrastructure of the internet such as it is, that it would make the vast majority of people unable to easily access alternative platforms and therefore alternative viewpoints. So we really should be under no illusions about how serious this moment is. And I hope that once some of the dust settles, people will start to realise what it is that they have done, which is 
to hand huge power over to a group of people who all sides of politics have been deeply concerned about the concentration of power and influence that's centred there. They've basically given them the green light to do whatever they want in this moment. And it's going to take a long time to unpick that and fight against it. Because unlike a government which might introduce authoritarian laws we dislike, these companies are fundamentally not accountable to anyone. And yet these are the people who've been given the green light to essentially police what is now the public square. You're listening to The Spikes Podcast. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the show. If that's the case, why not tell other people about it? You could share the episode on social media, or you can give us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. That way, you can help new listeners to find us, and it won't take any more than a few seconds. Help spread the word about the Spiked Podcast today by sharing us on social media or giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. Now, back to the show. England is only in the second week of full lockdown and there are already calls to tighten the restrictions further. The police have vowed to enforce the rules more rigidly amid fears that full compliance is waning. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer said that it's obvious the current rules would soon be tightened. And even as vaccinations are ramped up, many are calling for lockdown to continue indefinitely until Covid has been suppressed entirely. As the crisis in Britain's hospitals rages on, the media have turned their fire against the critics of lockdown. There are calls for lockdown sceptics to be humiliated, censored and ostracised. Lockdown sceptics are said to have blood on their hands. Their questioning of the current strategy has been branded dangerous and deadly. I mean, Ella, what do you make of the current climate we're in? It has to be said that certain groups of lockdown sceptics, the more kind of hardcore end of it, haven't exactly covered themselves in glory over the last few months, talking about the virus as, you know, not as anywhere near as serious as the flu or getting things wrong and underplaying the real challenges that we face throughout this pandemic. But even if that wasn't a fringe view, even if that was, even if lots of people were taking that position, moralizing and saying that people have blood in their hands never helps and is in fact rather disgusting because really what's going on is not a criticism of the kind of handful of people who still aren't taking this whole thing seriously. It's a criticism and a demonization of most people who, while they have consented to lockdown aspects of their lives to help the collective fight against this virus, are still very critical and still very worried about the effects that restrictions and lockdown have on their everyday lives. Mm. It's actually been really foul to watch Matt Hancock and others, Cressida Dick um, and even Boris Johnson, who usually tries to be relatively soft when he's talking about response to the restrictions, have been really playing the blame game and getting it wrong. So they seem to want to be painting the idea that the main reason this virus is ripping through people is because we're all cavalier and we're all irresponsible and we're all going about, you know, going into the shops willy-nilly or meeting up in parks or indoors and basically not giving a shit about the seriousness of this virus. When you look at the numbers where people are still congregating or where the virus is still spreading. It's quite obviously not the case. It's still spreading in hospitals. 
There are large numbers of people on the tube around rush hour, which people are complaining about. I mean, it's obvious to me what that means. It means that people have had to go back to work because they can't survive nine months off for another lockdown. There's far more people bringing their children back into nurseries. Again, obvious why that is. It's not because people want to risk their health or risk other people's health because they simply can't survive without having childcare moving forward. There's no question about what the real issue is here and no kind of no practical solutions about how to enable people to follow the restrictions in a way that doesn't decimate their lives. Instead, they point the finger. And it's that kind of attitude that is completely trampling on any vestige of goodwill that's left among the public of having a kind of sense of we're in this together or a collective spirit. Because really what it is, is the government covering its back so that if this lockdown fails again, which previous ones have done, then they're not to blame. It's us who are to blame. And that is really despicable. Tom? On the subject of the kind of demonisation of the lockdown sceptics, I think this has been really quite horrendous because I think it's really gone beyond just kind of taking aim at the lunatic fringe on Twitter or whatever. There's some very sensible people who have just had the temerity to challenge lockdown or suggest we should have come out of it earlier in the summer who have been caught in the crosshairs of all of this. And people, the most could be said for them is that they might have made predictions that ended up being wrong. But considering a lot of these lockdown fanatics still lionise Neil Ferguson, who's made an entire career out of getting things wrong, (laughs) I don't really understand how that can be the basis from which to expel them entirely from public life. But there is a very kind of McCarthyite atmosphere at the moment in relation to challenging these things. And on that point that Ella just raised about again, kind of very marginal instances of rule breaking or even ones that aren't actually rule breaking. We've seen in the past week, a lot of discussion about Jessica Allen and Eliza Moore, the two women who were fined for driving five miles away from their home to go on a socially distanced walk. The police caught them, they'd take away teas, they classified it as a picnic, you know, those fines have now been rescinded. But that's sparks a kind of, you know, days long discussion about how much people are and aren't sticking to the rules. What's interesting is that when you actually look into this, a Roland Manthorpe from Sky News cites um, UCL's COVID-19 social study, actually it's just compliance is higher than at any point since the first lockdown. You know, it's not as high as it was, considering the fact that we're a long way into this. A lot of mm. people are quite fatigued. And a point that he points to, which I think is, is really significant, is that the places where the where rules are being ignored is actually some of the most important ones around self-isolation. So according to UCL, about 13% of people are not isolating at all when they develop symptoms, and about a further 16% are only isolating for up to five days. And what I mean to say here is not to shame those people in particular. It's been clear for some time that the reason a lot of people aren't necessarily following those rules on self-isolation, particularly when they haven't developed symptoms themselves, but they've just been instructed to because they've come into contact with someone, is that they can't afford to. And Mm. sufficient provision has not been made for them in able to be able to do that. You hear stories about people working in the margins of the economy or on zero hours contracts who are actually terrified of going and getting a COVID test because they know what that means when they get one. And this is something that hasn't been addressed, nor has it on the basis of just simple government messaging. So much energy and resources and scorn, frankly, has been put into demanding that everyone stay home and again, haranguing people for are often the most minor breaches, if that of the COVID rules and regulations. Meanwhile, the rules around self-isolation, the importance of that and 
crucially, in tandem with that, making sure there's adequate provision to make sure that everyone who does need to self-isolate can self-isolate without taking that economic hit and making sure that they're properly provided for has been completely lost in this discussion whatsoever. And we find ourselves arguing over whether or not going for a walk with two T's is a picnic or not. I think that's something which has been entirely missed in this lockdown, it's something we've come back to time and time again, which is that while so much energy has been focused on these kind of population-wide measures, some of the very specific surgical but very important things that could happen and need to happen have been completely neglected. And that's something which it's amazing hasn't been talked about more in the discussion so far. You know, that's exactly right, Tom. And and, and what's frustrating is that actually it has been the lockdown sceptics who have been at the forefront of pushing those issues for pointing out that self-isolation is not happening. People who we know have COVID, you know, rather than concentrating on the entire population, most of whom are healthy, (laughs) we're ignoring the people who are definitely actually sick and could spread it. It's those of us who are sceptical of the lockdown who have been arguing for more protection for the vulnerable, for the elderly. You know, we were the ones to notice very early on that there were serious outbreaks happening in in care homes back in the spring, while pretty much the rest of the the media was was worrying about can people sit on a park bench for or not. And given all of that, it's just so bizarre to have the finger pointed at people who have criticised the strategy, at people who have warned that the strategy doesn't work. And, you know, if it hasn't worked the first two times, it won't work a third time. And instead, you know, we have people whose views are actually represented in the government, in SAGE, and whose advice has been heeded for the third time, on whose watch this massive failure and all of these deaths have happened. They are the ones that somehow get to take the moral high ground. I find that utterly utterly bizarre and just completely illogical, frankly. Ella? Another thing to note is the kind of twisting of the word sceptical or scepticism. You know, what it means is not that you deny or you refuse to do what you're told by the government. It's not lockdown deniers. Being sceptical is a healthy part of, you know, any kind of sensible approach to a situation which is constantly changing, which is why, you know, someone like me, who might have had a very different opinion back in the summer of last year or, you know, back in the spring or back in the autumn when we were in a different situation. I mean, much more critical of lockdowns. I've now personally come to a position with the new strain where I'm much more consenting to the idea of a lockdown at this particular moment because the situation has changed in relation to the rise in numbers and the rise in deaths. But what hasn't changed is my outlook on the government and the government's handling of it. What hasn't changed is my desire to maintain a level of scepticism about whether this works, to be open to different strategies, to certainly not be wanting to close down or demonise or shame or paint like they're evil anyone who has questions about this because of the fact that the situation keeps changing. I mean, people who are sort of paid up, 100% blind lockdown supporters keep saying the kind of phrase, you know, follow the science, follow the science. And the thing about science is blind faith is the opposite of any kind of scientific approach. For a scientific approach, you always have to maintain a level of scepticism and an openness to having different outlooks, to having different strategies. You know, I think it was Brendan mentioned it in one of his columns this week. It is possible for people to say, yes, I won't go over to my mum's house. Yes, I will wear a mask indoors, things which I think are sensible at the current moment. But no, I won't shut off or sanitise or limit my mind. I'm going to have discussions Mm. about this 
online because that's the only place we can. And I'm going to be up for talking about it. People are complex enough that they can do that. They can agree to consent to some things and want to talk about other things. And just one note on, I think one of the really big problems about all of this, and I know we like to criticize them on this podcast. I think the Labour Party is more so than ever before worthy of absolutely slating because Keir Starmer (laughs) came out in the last week and his big thing to be an opposition leader, you know, his big point with Boris Johnson was about asking whether we should shut down people from looking at houses, house viewing. You just think how many people are looking at houses today? What is the point of that? And it's actually not just a stupid thing that Keir Starmer's come up with. It's really telling because the reason why there are people who are so sceptical in relation to the lockdown is because idiot politicians like Keir Starmer, (laughs) really they only want to do is to look like they're doing something. That's the only way you can explain going on about house viewings. And so then that kind of cynicism leads to people not believing that the government is doing the right thing on behalf of the public. And I mean, you know, call it sceptical, but I think that's a healthy kind of scepticism when people come out with crap like that. Yeah. And when the options pretty much left to the government for, you know, closing off transitions are stopping house viewings and maybe banning click and collect buying, you know, that we've really pushed this strategy to its limits, even despite the kind of horrendous things happening in hospitals right now, it's never too late for a rethink. It's never too late to try something new, to try something that might actually reduce the number of vulnerable people catching this virus and getting ill from it. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. It's Fraser here with another quick reminder, if you haven't already, to consider giving Spiked a donation. All of our content is free and we want to keep it free so we can spread our pro-liberty, pro-democracy message as wide as possible. But we can only do that with your support. If you'd like to make a donation, it's easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. TV screenwriter Russell T Davies, known for his work on Queer as Folk and Doctor Who, has said that straight actors should not play gay characters. Only gay actors can give a performance that's truly authentic, he argues. Davies even said that you wouldn't cast someone able-bodied and put them in a wheelchair and you wouldn't black someone up. There have been similar rows about casting in recent months. The Australian singer Sia was attacked for casting a non-autistic actress to play an autistic role in her film Music. And the Israeli actress Gal Gadot has also come under fire for playing Cleopatra in an upcoming film. Ella, you've written about Russell T Davies this week. What are your thoughts? Well, it's really important that you quoted him, Fraser, because what Russell T Davies hasn't said is, he hasn't said, I've written this new TV program, I've produced this new TV program, it's a sin. I've decided as a position on my casting to cast gay actors in gay roles Mm. because I think that will be interesting or because I think that will bring a certain perspective. What he said is that if you don't do that, it's equivalent to blacking up. And if you don't do that, it's discriminatory. And that's the problem because what he's arguing is that artistic freedom shouldn't be allowed. I mean, he's arguing that, for example, Andrew Scott, a gay actor in real life, shouldn't have played a straight priest in Fleabag. He's arguing that 
one of the lead roles in The Inheritance, a two-part play that I went to see, produced by Matthew Lopez, that Kyle Soller, who was the lead in that, who's not gay, who gave a heartbreaking and beautiful performance as someone living through the AIDS crisis in the 1980s in New York, shouldn't have played that role. It's a total crackdown on artistic freedom and one clothed in the illusion of being sort of right on or producing more opportunities for more actors because the argument goes that gay actors have had a long history of not being hired that's true you know i think that that is true and there is <laughs> one of the main culprits is russell t davies himself who has produced a huge <laughs> number of programs over the decades all about gay characters and gay stories and hasn't cast gay actors in them in fact he himself has an anecdote of being accosted i think it was at a nightclub somewhere with someone coming up and saying for god's sake will you please cast some gay men in the roles in queer as folk and he said oh i didn't know you existed and they said well did you look i mean you know whether this is his kind of version <laughs> of a mea culpa i don't know but it's not just about this program it's a sin and russell t davies this is a trend that is happening where we have a real obsession with the identity of actors and actresses rather than an appreciation of whether or not they are good at their skill, which is convincing us that they're someone that they're not. That is what acting is after all. And the thing that struck me is the real narcissism at the heart of this. And I know it's a, it's a bit of a you know cliche to say that people involved in the movies or in TV are egotistical, but this kind of prioritization of an individual's identity, of who they are, of where they've come from, of what they look like, what their lived experience is over their performance mm. is your average actor's <laughs> wet dream. It's like, yeah, it's me, me, me. It's all about me rather than it being about the craft, rather than it being about the end product of the art, which is the the performance. And, you know, some people, I think, buy into big Hollywood names. Some people buy into the personality of actors and actresses. But most of us who are serious about the craft of TV and film productions, about watching good television and good films, are far more interested in the performance. And if we end up in a situation where a person's identity has to link up with the role that they play, you can go down all different kind of dark routes where that will lead. It means that no one in a wheelchair will ever be able to play a role that isn't in a wheelchair. If you want to better the situation for diversity in the arts, which I think is a noble desire and should be supported, and there are issues in relation to who gets what roles, there has always been this isn't the way to do it. It's about opening it up rather than closing it down. You know, the diversity discussion exposes the contradiction at the heart of identity politics, doesn't it? Because it's obviously seen as a very positive thing in a kind of modern culture to have diverse casting, colorblind casting. Ella, in your piece, you, you raised the example of the globe and the various, you know, plays that are featured, even, you know, deaf and dumb actors playing Shakespearean characters. And they characters. were awful. Yeah, were those awful. plays were pretty. I, I saw one of them, and it was because every single role was was cast in in a let's say a diverse way against type, men playing women and vice versa, and all, and was so in your face that it it was distracting from the performance. But I, I guess the point is that really it should be down to producers and directors to depending on what they're trying to achieve, and if your goal is is less about 
the actual artistic experience and you have a kind of social justice goal in mind in the production of your of your play or your television show then fair enough go ahead with it but you might have a very mundane reason to cast a straight actor in a gay role which could be mm. that that actor's just more famous and and more bankable you know that's why Scarlett Johansson and Eddie Redmayne have been cast in in trans roles there's not some kind of hideous conspiracy to shut out trans actors or to shut out gay actors often these decisions can come down to yeah questions of art but also just questions of of, of financing and the star system tom I think it's interesting as well because when people like Ella and myself and other people have, have criticised the comments that Russell T Davies made, it's been somewhat caricatured of, oh, this is saying that, you know, people fighting for the right of straight actors to play gay roles or whatever. But there's a very strong argument that this dynamic becomes incredibly limiting for if you want to call it LGBT cinema and gay actors as well, that it mm. becomes its own kind of pigeonholing. Because again, obviously there was years and years in Hollywood and in theatre where you did have this phenomenon of, of typecasting. I'm sure it still goes on today as well, where you have people who are basically advised not to come out because they won't be seen as convincing as a straight male lead, say. And I can imagine that be getting particularly frustrating in the 2000s where you had that kind of like stream of films, Brokeback Mountain or Milk or whatever, where you had straight actors winning all sorts of plaudits for playing gay roles. Meanwhile, many great gay actors were still feeling forced to stay in the closet. But at the same time, there is a way in which the kind of old typecasting being replaced by this kind of woke typecasting could be just as limiting. You're basically creating a situation in which LGBT films or gay actors are coming under a kind of responsibility to represent their identity, to mm. represent the community. And there's a way that that could be incredibly limiting. You create a situation where films are not just films, they are gay films. Yeah. <laughs> actors are not just actors, they are gay actors. And there's been some out gay actors who've been very critical of this. Chris New, who starred in the film Weekend, came out about 10 years ago. It was kind of indie film, LGBT film. And he said in an interview with The Guardian a couple of years ago that he feels like he lives in a cultural ghetto because he's an out gay actor. He says that he turns down roles whenever the character is basically just the gay character. And as a result of that, he doesn't work very much because he feels like, again, it's incredibly limiting. He's just there to basically tell the story of his identity in some kind of abstract way. And I think that's something which, again, can be incredibly limiting in a different kind of way, which is that rather than see a character, someone who has various different parts of their identity, various different parts of things that an actor or an audience might be able to connect and to empathise with and to draw out, they basically just become avatars of their identity group. Mm. So again, moving from the old typecasting to the new typecasting, it has the potential for being incredibly limiting, not just on creative freedom in general, as, we, as you guys have spoken about, but specifically for people who find themselves in that pigeonhole of being the LGBT filmmaker or the LGBT actor, because all of those burdens of representation such as it is suddenly fall directly on their shoulders. Ella? I'm reminded of this fantastic documentary, Paris is Burning from 1990, which is all about the drag queen scene in New York. And they have this brilliant scene in it where they film the drag competitions. And it's not just the kind of stereotypical dragging that comes to mind, you know, big dresses, big makeup, big hair, but it's, they have rounds in it, these drag queens, where they have to pass as mum dropping off the kids, dad going out to work, someone at the bus stop. And the whole point of it is that what they're saying is that people play around with identity all the time, that actually, you know, they call into question, what is it to be truly authentic? Everything, the minute you put on your clothes in the morning, you're putting on some level of a show. And while that in itself can be taken to its extreme, I'd like to see a little bit more of that fluidity 
when it comes to approaches to casting or art and less of the kind of obsession with authenticity that identity politics ironically embeds when it's meant to be all about uh, you know anything goes man but actually it's the opposite it's very much more about putting things in boxes and putting limits on things so a little less obsession with authenticity and a little more belief in artistic freedom i think would go a long way Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.